All right. Happy Easter, everybody. Welcome. He's risen indeed. I say that at Christmas time too. I say he's incarnated. And I wait for people to say he's incarnated indeed, but they never do. Yeah, it doesn't exist because it's weird. Uh, Well, you guys know if you're in theological equipping that this room will triple in size in the next uh, 15 minutes or so. And, uh, but today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be getting into covenants. What are covenants? Why are they exciting? Before I do, I want to say this. So y'all can be in prayer for Jeff Ashley. Uh, he had to take his daughter in to the emergency room last night, and she had to have an emergency surgery this morning uh, on a bone behind her ear that got infected. Uh, so far, everything is, is going well, but y'all can be praying for him. He was scheduled to preach this morning, so I got a call at 9.30 last night, and it was like, good luck winging it on Easter. And so, uh, so that's what's going to be going on. Before that, though, uh, the lesson that I actually prepared for here is covenants, and I want to tell you why this is important. So throughout this semester, we've been studying really three major doctrines. We've been studying the doctrine of humanity. What does it mean to be human? We've been studying the doctrine of sin. What happened in our fall? How come we're corrupted? What is sin? What is total depravity? We've been studying that. And then for the rest of the semester, we're going to be studying what's called soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. The Greek word soteria means salvation. The Greek word soter means savior. That's what we're going to be studying for the rest of the semester. And so uh, what Jeff did last week is he gave kind of an overview of the story of the Bible. The Bible is not a bunch of cut up small stories. That's how I was taught the Bible growing up. Here's a story of David. He's a really good slingshot guy. Here's a story of Noah. He has a really big boat, right, and all this kind of stuff. That's not the point of all those stories in the Bible. All those little stories in the Old Testament are meant to be a picture of a much larger overarching story, which is how the Trinitarian God of the universe is putting the world back to rights through Christ, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, which is what we celebrate here on Easter. That's the bigger storyline. We put that storyline under the title of kingdom. The whole Bible is a story of a king, God, whose subjects rebel against him and everything goes bad, so he sends Christ to redeem that kingdom and make everything great again, okay? That's the storyline of the Bible. Jeff talked about that last week. Today, though, we're going to talk about covenants. The way that God redeems is not just by us just saving ourselves. It's not by us trying to bring our redemption. The way that he saves mankind is through making covenants with us, through making promises to us, to giving stipulations. And so we will talk about this. If you are someone who likes theology, you're going to love today. If you're a theology nerd, but if you are not, you are going to hate this and wonder why we're doing it. But it is important. So we're going to be doing covenants today. Let's talk a little bit about what a covenant is. I've given two definitions here for you. The first one is, if you didn't get a handout in the back, by the way, you'll you'll want to grab one of those. I've got a lot of notes for this today. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. A covenant is an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. I put a second definition here just to make it even clearer. An agreement or promise between two or more parties, especially for the performance of some action, okay? Especially for the performance of some action. So here's what we're going to be talking about today. Why does God covenant with mankind? What are these covenants? And why are they important? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Let me just give you a teaser with some of these questions. Has God promised a future land grant to Israel? Does Israel as a nation have a right to exist, not politically, but biblically? That's the kind of thing that we're going to go to. How does the Old Testament relate to the New? Are we still bound by certain elements of the Mosaic Law, or are we not? Those are the kind of things that we're going to be going over today as we talk about covenants. But first, let's go over a few things to know about covenants. Five things I want you to know about covenants. First, 
Covenants in the Bible are made for all kinds of reasons. Covenants are made for all kinds of reasons. For example, you have international treaties. Hey, please don't invade me and I want to invade you. Deal, deal, pinky swear, and you have a covenant, okay? Clan alliances, all right? You have those in the Old Testament. I've put a few references here for these. Personal agreements are a lot of times done as covenants, okay? Uh, National agreements where a nation says, if you will be our ally and you go to war, we will come and we will fight with you. Those are seen as covenants. Uh, Marriages are covenants, obviously, and deeply personal. So first of all, covenants can be made for all kinds of reasons. The second thing to know about covenant is covenant is God's response to human sin. Okay, here's something you need to realize. When we rebelled and we sinned against God, he could have just damned us all. I think it was Luther has a quote where, uh, if the world had treated me the way it has treated God, I would kick the vile, wretched thing to pieces. And that's exactly what God could have done. That could have been the end of the story. There's this infinite, all-powerful God who's everywhere, who's invisible, who's super mighty, and we rebel against him. He could have just damned us. He could have just condemned us. That's what he does when angels sin. Angels have no chance of redemption. They just get cast down, and that's it. That was a one shot, one strike, and you're out. But what God does instead, because he loves us, and for his glory wants to redeem us, is he makes covenants. He makes promises to come into relationship with us. I think we have a tendency not to realize how important that is. We don't have any claim on God. We don't get to just decide to follow God. We don't get to just decide to make agreements with God. There's God. We've sinned. At that point, we have no rights. So it's God's grace, the very fact that he makes covenants at all. It's his grace that he says, I'm going to save mankind, and I'm going to enter into a relationship with you. My wife and I, we didn't just one day start hanging out for the rest of our lives, right? We had a covenant. We entered into this thing where we said, we are going to be in a relationship together. These are the stipulations of the covenant. Please don't cheat on me. I won't cheat on you. Please do these things. I'll do these things. Great. And we had a covenant, all right? And uh, what covenants are is they're intensely personal. There's these promises that go back and forth. And so uh, that's what God does with humanity. So you need to realize that covenant, just the idea of covenant is already an act of grace. God could have damned us, but the fact that he marries us, the fact that he enters into a relationship with us is already an act of grace, okay? Broken, sinful humans don't get to just approach God. By the way, does your notes have two number twos right here? One, two, two? Okay, number two B. God's loving kindness is essential to God's covenant, okay? God's covenant is based upon God's character. You need to know that God's covenants are based upon his character. There's a word that your Bible translates as loving kindness. You'll constantly see it as loving kindness. It's the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed means something like God's covenant faithfulness, his I promise to keep loving you-ness. That's kind of what it means. I've entered into a relationship with you, and though you cheat on me, I don't desert you-ness. That's kind of what that means. But you need to realize that God's nature is essential for God's covenants. God's kindness and his goodness and these kind of things are essential for him to have the kind of covenants he has with mankind. Number three, which is actually number four, covenants are deeply personal, okay? Deeply personal. Let me ask you this question. What is the difference between a covenant and a contract? What's the difference between a covenant and a contract? I've heard pastors get up and they try to make all these differences where they say, well, a contract is where if you break it, it's over, whereas a covenant, even if you break it, it's not over. There's a problem with that because marriages are called contracts in the ancient world and all these kind of things. The only difference I can think of between a contract and a covenant is that covenants are deeply personal. Covenants are deeply personal. Whenever I want to download music, the little Apple iTunes thing pops up. That is not a covenant. I don't know Apple. I don't know anybody that works for Apple. That is merely a contract. I click on a button that says, I hereby swear before God that I've read this, and I've never read it. I've never read it, okay? So it pops up and it says, I agree, and I'm like, I hope I'm not selling my soul, I agree. And I just click on it, and it's a contract. 
right? It's not personal. There's not all these uh, covenant obligations. We haven't set up signs and these kind of things. It's just a contract. It's saying, you agree to give me music, I agree to give you money, and apparently 10,000 other things, but I don't have time to read it because I'm a busy person and I just need my tunes, and so I click on it. That's a contract, okay? Covenants, though, are deeply personal. They're deeply personal. You don't have a contract just when you enter into a marriage. It's a covenant. It's deeper because you know the person, okay? You know the person. Covenants are linked to election. Covenants are linked to election. Jerry Halbrook, who is the pastor here for 25 years, one time said something in a sermon that I just thought, he said a lot of things really good in a sermon, but he said something I thought was just really powerful. He said, we have a tendency when it comes to predestination and election to get really uncomfortable. But what he said is, you already believe in election. Why did God use Adam instead of somebody else? Why did God save Noah and his family and not another family? Why did God choose Abraham? He could have chosen any other pagan, but he chose Abram, who was a moon-worshiping pagan from the town of Ur, and said, you're going to be my people. And Abraham doesn't really have much of a say in that. Why does he choose the nation of Israel? He says that I didn't choose you because you were the greatest nation or the biggest nation. I chose you because I set my love on you. Why does he choose David and, and not Saul? Why does he choose Judah to be the tribe that the Messiah will come from? Why, why does he choose all these things? You see, you already believe in election way before you get to this idea of salvation. Covenant is linked up with the idea of election, that God decides to have mercy on us. He doesn't owe us anything other than hell, so everything else is a gift. Anything you have in your life other than hell, totally a gift from God. God hates entitlement. That doesn't exist for him. He made us out of dirt. We own nothing. We sin against him. We deserve hell, and he gives us instead eternal life and everything. It's pretty good. It's a pretty good trade. It's a pretty good deal, okay? Number five, which is also number six, the two most common types of covenants in the ancient Near East, here's what they are. The first is what's called a suzerain vassal treaty. Doesn't that sound like a boring nerd, push your glasses up on your nose term, okay? A suzerain vassal treaty. The other was called a royal charter or land grant. Now, there are a bunch of different kinds of covenants. The two biggest ones you're going to see in the ancient Near East, one is a land grant, which is basically where somebody says, I hereby give you this land. God does that, by the way, in the Old Testament. Israel, here's your allotted portion. You know, this tribe is over here and this tribe is over here. So you have that idea. But the really common one we're going to focus on is what's called a suzerain vassal treaty. A suzerain is a king, okay? A suzerain is a king and a vassal is like a servant, okay? You might think back to... uh, uh, you know, if you took a class in history in high school and you learned about the feudal system and there were vassals that worked the land, that's kind of the idea. Here's the point that I'm trying to make with this. In the Bible, when God makes covenants, you don't have a covenant between two equals. It's not like I say, God, here's all the things I want these covenants to be about. And he says, Zach, you're good and smart, not made from dirt and eternal like me. So let's just go ahead and agree. It doesn't work that way, okay? Uh, it's not a, an agreement between two equals, It's an agreement between a king and a slave, between a king and a servant. God sets the stipulations. He says, this is what I'm promising you. This is what I'm asking you to do. Or sometimes he doesn't ask us to do. He just says, this is what I'm going to do. And we just can either receive it or reject it. We don't really get a say. We don't get to go into that Apple agreement and start scratching out things and putting our initials by it and these kind of things. So when God makes covenants in the Bible, you have to realize it is not between two equals. God is far above us. By far above, I mean infinitely far above. And he gets to pick the stipulations of the covenants. Everybody with me so far? Okay, okay. Hey, for the sermon, it's going to be real bad, so soak in your theological learning now. How many covenants will we be studying? Well, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be studying six primary covenants, okay? The first one is with Adam and creation. Now, here's what's interesting. The word covenant is not used with the story of Adam, 
okay? But the concepts of a covenant are there. You have the stipulations, you have the promise, you have blessings and curses, should Adam obey? And so we're, not, we're, not, we're never concerned with a, if a particular word occurs in the Bible. We're always concerned if there are certain concepts in the Bible. So you do have a concept of covenant with Adam in Genesis, okay? The, the, the word, by the way, the, the phrase in Hebrew for beginning a covenant, it's karat barit. That's what it is in Hebrew, karat barit. It means to cut a covenant. Why? Because what they would do in the ancient world is they would cut an animal in half when they were making a covenant, and they would walk through the two parts of that animal as they made their covenant. Because what they were saying is, should I break my covenant, may this happen to me. May this happen to me. Here's what's crazy in the book of Genesis. God makes a covenant, and he image is kind of like a flame. God doesn't have a body, you can't see him. So somehow image is like a flame, goes through these dead animals. What God is saying is, should I break my covenants, may I be killed? He can't be killed, which means he swears he's going to keep it. All right, but that's the idea of cutting a covenant or making a covenant. So you have, uh, you have a covenant with Adam in creation. If you guys eat of the, the correct tree and you don't sin against me, everything will be great. But on the day you eat of it, you will surely die and everything will be awful. You have a covenant made with Noah. All right, a covenant made with Noah. Noah's kind of seen as a second Adam, but he ends up, uh, he's a gardener like Adam as well. He uh, plants a vineyard, uh, but he ends up like Adam failing in the covenant. Ends up getting plastered, falls, you know, falls asleep naked in his tent like some sort of redneck, and uh, that's what goes on with Noah. You have a covenant with Abraham and then his descendants that we know of as Israel. That's what it means to be an Israelite, that you're of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You have a covenant with Moses. All right, you have a covenant with Moses, which also goes to the people of Israel. You have a covenant with David. The covenant is that God promises that David will never fail to have a man on the throne. And then you have the new covenant, all right? Then you have the new covenant, which is inaugurated in Christ. And so we'll be talking about those different covenants as we go along in the rest of the semester. Now, let's get into some nerdy history stuff, and then we will get into a big debate amongst Christians. It'll be so good. I'm going to pick two champions from each party. I'm going to have you just fight on stage, just fist fight. Whoever wins is the correct theological position. But I get to pick who the two people are. Okay? That way my position wins. Common parts of an ancient Near Eastern covenant. Here's what you typically have in covenants in the ancient Near East, including with Israel. First of all, you have a preamble. You have an introduction to the suzerain. Here's who the king is, and here's why he's great. You then have a historical prologue, which goes over the history of those two parties up to this point. Hey, my name's blah, blah, blah. I'm the king of, uh, you know, uh, Babylon or whatever. And you and I have had a great relationship. I've been a great king. You've been a good citizen. Now we're going to enter into a covenant. You have stipulations which outline what is required for each party. As your king, I'm going to protect you. I'm going to make decisions for the city. And when we go to war, I'm going to protect you. And your job is to pay taxes and fight in my army and do whatever you're supposed to do. Okay? You have a deposit. Typically in the ancient Near East, when these covenants are made, they will take the covenant and they will put it in someplace sacred. So they'll put it in one of their temples or they'll put it near an idol or a statue of one of their gods or something like that. And it's kind of like saying, should you break this covenant, the gods are watching, okay? The gods are watching, which is why you have number five, witnesses. You have a list of witnesses, often the gods to witness the covenant, okay? Number six, you have blessings and curses, stipulations of what should happen to each party if they keep or break the covenant. It will say, if you keep the covenant... I'll give you a bunch of land, I'll give you a bunch of money, everything will be great. But if you break the covenant, I will cut your head off as the king, or uh, I will kill you and your family, or whatever it might be. And then lastly, this is really important, you have a sign. You have a symbol to guarantee that the treaty would be kept. Now, that's going to become really important as we look at biblical covenants, because you have certain signs given, whether that sign is circumcision, whether that sign is a rainbow, whether that sign is baptism, 
whether that's not, whatever it might be. Okay, so signs often accompany covenants. When I married my wife, we had a sign that accompanied that covenant, and it was a wedding ring, which she lost playing water volleyball one day. Okay? I'm still bitter. We're working through it. We're in counseling. But you have these signs that accompany these covenants, okay? Now, I've taken a little picture here of an example of an ancient Near Eastern covenant, okay? I don't, we're not going to read the whole thing. I just want you to see a few things here. First of all, you have a preamble, which talks about the king, okay? Then you have the prologue, when he says, basically, when your father died, I kind of adopted you. You owe me a bunch of stuff. Number three, you have the stipulations. You shall remain loyal to me, the Hittite king and my sons forever, and et cetera, et cetera. And then number four, you have a provision for the deposit in the temple. A duplicate of this document has been deposited before the god Tesub, okay? Uh, Number five, the list of the gods as witnesses, okay? And then number six, the curses and blessings formula. Should Dupi Tesub, notice that this guy's named after that god, that's the guy who's entering into covenant with this king, fail to honor this treaty, may the gods of the oath destroy him together with his wife, his son, his grandson, his house, his land, and everything. Okay, so this is a common form you have in the ancient Near East. Now, not all covenants have all seven things that I mentioned. Notice that this one doesn't have a sign like I talked about. But they typically, these are the the elements that are typical of ancient Near Eastern covenants. Okay, so just to summarize, who in your own words can tell me what a covenant is without reading the definition? I failed you. I failed you all miserably. Do the best that you can. Why, why is it important to understand covenants? Let me ask the question that way. I'll wait. I'll wait all day. Yes, excellent. That's a good answer. So we can understand our relationship with God. We've sinned against God. He owes us nothing, but because he loves us, he enters into a relationship with us, and the way he enters into those relationships is through covenants. By the way, if you start to understand this idea of covenants, the whole Bible will make better sense to you. What you see is God going to Adam and Adam failing. Then he goes to Noah. Noah's like a second Adam, and he fails. Then he goes to Abram, and Abram is unfaithful. He sleeps with Hagar, etc., and he fails. And he goes to Moses and the Israelites, and they make a golden calf, and they sin, and they fail. And he goes to David, and David fails. He sleeps with taking a Bathsheba as he sees her on the roof, and then he uh, kills Uriah, etc., and he fails. And then you get to Christ, and Christ keeps the covenants on our behalf. The one who is truly God and truly man keeps the covenants that no other Adam before him was able to keep, Right? I often say that what you get throughout the history of Israel is failure and failure and failure and failure. And what you get in the New Testament is God saying, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And then he sends the son, okay? So that's what's going on with covenants. That's a little introduction to covenants. Now, let me give you a huge debate in theology that you might not even know is a debate, but it is super, super, super important, okay? Here's the issue. What is the difference between dispensational and covenantal theology? Maybe you've heard this term. Maybe you haven't. I'm going to try to make what is a very complex subject as simple as possible. Okay, I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible. Here's the issue. When the Bible makes promises to Israel in the Old Testament, are those promises to be fulfilled in literal, national, physical Israel? Or are those promises fulfilled in the church? Think about that for a second. There's all these promises in the Old Testament. Israel, you'll have this land. You'll have circumcision, you'll have priests, you'll have a temple, you'll have uh, all these kind of things. And some of the promises say that they go on forever. You'll have this as a promise forever. Are those promises fulfilled in Israel proper, in literal, national, blue flag, star of David, Israel? Or are those fulfilled in the church? That's the big debate. By the way, this is a huge debate amongst Christians, okay, specifically Protestants. This is actually one of the big things that why you have different Protestant denominations, 
okay? Why is there one Bible but like a bajillion denominations? One of the big reasons is because people don't quite know how do we fit the Old and the New Testament together. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theological mind to ever come out of America, says there is no issue in divinity that is so much debated as how the Testaments go together, all right? As how the Testaments go together. So what do you do with this? Here's another way to ask the question. How do the Old and the New Testament go together, and how should the covenants be interpreted? Is there primarily continuity, or is there primarily discontinuity? Everybody with me so far? Okay. So here's the the way I can make it as simple as possible. A dispensationalist, someone who's dispensational, believes that the promises are fulfilled in literal Israel that were made to Israel in the Old Testament. Those who are covenantal believe that they are fulfilled in the church, that they would see as the new Israel. In fact, in in Galatians 6, the church is actually called the Israel of God. Okay, the church is called the Israel of God. Where do you land on that spectrum? Where do you land on that spectrum? That's what we're going to be talking about. I'm super excited about it. You're probably not. Let's just keep going. First of all, let me say this. The terms in this debate, dispensational and covenantal, are super unhelpful. Every group believes in dispensations, meaning that there are these different eras of redemptive history, so that term's super unhelpful. And both groups believe that God makes covenants, so it's super unhelpful, right? It's like having a debate between two people, and it's like, here are the people that like money, and here are the people that also like money. Let's have a debate. And you're like, what are we debating? I don't quite understand. Okay, so the terms are super unhelpful. Both believe in dispensations, meaning different eras of redemptive history, and both believe that God makes covenants. The question is, how should those go together? Okay, how should those go together? Because I love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength, I've created a little chart for you to try to outline these two positions. So let's go over this chart real quick. First question, is there primarily continuity or discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments? A dispensationalist says that there is discontinuity, that the New Testament is radically new, whereas a, someone who's covenantal would say that there's a lot of continuity. Okay, they're very similar. Who are God's people? A dispensationalist, at least as they were originally formed, they've changed their positions now, but as they originally formed would say God's people are Israel and the church. In a sense, God has two peoples, okay? Whereas covenantalism says that it's the church. It's only those that are believers in Christ. In whom will the Old Testament promises be fulfilled? Dispensationalist says Israel. Covenantalism says the church. Are promises made to Israel to be fulfilled literally in Israel, or can they be applied metaphorically or typologically to Christ and his people? Dispensationalism says they are literally just about Israel. The covenantalist says, no, they can actually be applied to Christ. In fact, many of those promises are applied to Christ. Is there a future land promise to national physical Israel? Dispensationalism says yes. Covenantalism says no. By the way, interesting, fascinating historical fact. When Israel was declared to be a nation in 1948, that would have never happened had you not had so much dispensationalism in the United States. That wave is caused. So your theology has very practical implications for your politics, for sociology, for a lot of other things, okay? When did the church start? Dispensationalism will say the church started at Pentecost. The church is something that's somewhat different than Israel's. God's new covenant people are somewhat different than God's old covenant people, whereas covenantalists will say, no, God's people really started in the Old Testament, right? David was, in a sense, a part of the church. You have God's people that have the Spirit in the Old Testament that love God, and you have his people in the New Testament that love God. So that's one people, In fact, in the Old Testament, when it translates the term congregation or assembly, your New Testament translators translate it as church, which is really confusing because it's the same word, congregation or assembly, ecclesia, okay? So let's go over these two positions. You ready? It's really, it's theological nerd time. It's theological nerd time. Here we go. What is dispensationalism? Dispensationalism, let's talk about dispensationalism first. Dispensationalism is a relatively new thing in theology, okay? Relatively new. How old is church history? 
How old? How old is Christianity? 2,000 years old, or does it go back into the Old Testament? You see, my question is already tricky of putting you into boxes of dispensational or covenantal theology. Here's my point, though. Of 2,000 years of church history, okay, this view has only come around, been around for about 150 years. It comes up in the mid-1800s. Okay, so out of 2,000 years of church history, this is a somewhat brand new view. This is the view supported by things like the Left Behind series, right, where everybody becomes a pile of clothes and they're just evaporated up into this pre-tribulational rapture. Maybe you've seen something like this. I actually saw a video online where the girl, uh, there was a girl at a coffee shop who was dispensational, and so when she went to the bathroom, all her friends left piles of clothes and ran out of the coffee shop. So when she came out, she's like, it's happening, right? Okay. That's dispensationalism. It's new. It started with a guy out of England in the, in the kind of the Brethren Anabaptist movement, uh, and his name was John Nelson Darby. Okay, John Nelson Darby. It was popularized in the United States. So in church history, you don't have dispensationalism. And really today, you don't have much dispensationalism. It's only popular in English-speaking countries mainly. It's popular in the U.S. It's popular in England. It's popular in Australia. There, it, it is a few other places, but it's not the dominant view. Okay, it might be dominant to you. You probably heard this growing up. If you grew up in a Baptist church, a Bible church, a charismatic church, Pentecostal or Assemblies of God, something like this. This was probably the view that you were taught was dispensationalism. It was popularized in the U.S. by a few guys. Tell me if you've ever heard of these names. Dwight Moody, right? If you've ever heard of Moody Bible Institute, they're kind of a bastion of dispensational theology. C.I. Schofield. I don't know if you have a Schofield reference Bible. Maybe you've heard of the name Schofield. And here was the big one, Charles Ryrie. Maybe you have a Ryrie study Bible. My wife had one after we got married. I teased her for it and put it in a closet. You, just to let you know where I land on this position. Uh, uh, so uh, this view was popularized uh, specifically in the United States after the 1850s-ish, uh, and those are the big names that are associated with it. Dallas Theological Seminary is probably the biggest hub of dispensationalism. What's so ironic is Jerry Holbrook, Jeff Ashley, and I all went to schools that were dispensational, but none of us turned out dispensational because those schools also did a good job of teaching us how to interpret the Bible. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> Dispensationalism really progressed in three movements. You have what's called classical dispensationalism, where they literally believed the church would inherit the earth. Is, I'm sorry, church would inherit heaven. So church would be in heaven. Israel would be on the earth, and never the twain shall meet. Never the two shall meet. So you really, in a sense, had two people of God in two different locations for all eternity. You then got what was called revised dispensationalism, which held that the church and Israel would be up in heaven together, but kind of in different sections, right? Kind of like a, like a segregation of heaven. And then more recently, you get what's called progressive dispensationalism, which is nowhere near as, as bad as the other ones. There's a lot of good, godly, righteous guys that hold progressive dispensationalism. Uh, but that's kind of what you got, okay? That's kind of what you've got. Now, what dispensationalists believe is that there are about seven eras mentioned in the Bible, seven dispensations. That's where that term comes from, mentioned in the Bible. Here's what those are. In Eden, you have what's called the Age of Innocence. In uh, the fall to the flood, so after the sin enters the world to the flood of Noah, you have the idea of conscience. People are kind of ruled by conscience. There's no Mosaic law given yet. Then from Noah to Babel, you get the idea of human government. You get this right after the flood where God says that if man sheds blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for man is made in the image of uh, God. And so you get this idea of human government reigning. Next, you get this era of promise. That's Abraham through Egypt. Then you get the dispensation or the era of the Mosaic law. That's Moses through John the Baptist. Then you get the era of grace, which is the church age. And then you get the era of the kingdom, which is a future millennium mentioned in Revelation 20 for a dispensationalist, okay? There's a very strong disunity between the Old and New Testament in this system. So I said a bunch of things. Here's all you have to remember. Dispensationalism, you hear the word dis, you hear the word disunity. That's what you should think of. 
okay? In dispensationalism, that holds a strong disunity between the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament was something primarily concerned with Israel. The New Testament is very disunified from that. The church is almost like this little subset of God's plan, and then he's going to get back to Israel again. So if God were saying a sentence in dispensationalism, here's what he would say. Israel, Israel, Israel. Israel, Israel. Parentheses, the church. Israel, Israel, Israel. Okay? I think, by the way, the exact opposite is true. I think this is why the Bible starts in Genesis 1 and not in Genesis 12. I think God says, I'm about redeeming the whole world, the whole world, the whole world. I'm going to use Israel to do it. Israel's the parentheses, back to redeeming the whole world, the whole world, the whole world. Okay? But that's, uh, that's dispensationalism. Now, here's what marks out dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is marked by an Israel church distinction, an ethnic way of interpreting the covenants. They have to be about ethnic Israel. A pre-tribulational rapture, a pre-tribulational rapture. Maybe you've been taught about a pre-tribulational rapture. When we talk about the end times, we'll talk about that. There is not one text in the entire Bible that talks about a pre-tribulational rapture. The text that people try to use to make it about the rapture, 1 Thessalonians 4, is not about this invisible, quiet second coming of Jesus where we go up and that's just it. It says that there is a shout and a trumpet and the call of an archangel. It's really obvious. It's the second coming is what it's talking about, not, uh, not this pre-second coming coming. Okay? A premillennial kingdom prior to the eternal state and credo-baptism. So to their credit, they do realize that only believers should be baptized. Most of them. Most of them. Okay? Here's some problems with dispensationalism. It fails to recognize the continuity between the Old and New Testaments. You have to realize, Jesus would have called the Old Testament this. You ready? The Bible. You didn't have the New Testament written yet. Okay, so there has to be some sort of... Con- when Paul talks about the Scriptures, he's not talking about his letters which weren't written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. It ignores the fact that the New Testament authors are fine applying passages originally about Israel to the church. So one of the things dispensationalists will say is they'll say you should always interpret the Bible literally unless you have some reason not to do so. One, that becomes arbitrary. Two, that's not how we interpret the Bible. You interpret the Bible based on genre. You're not going to always interpret everything literally. If you're in Proverbs or you're in Psalms or you're in Revelation or something like this, that's very figurative imagery. And the New Testament authors are fine taking passages that were originally about Israel and making them about who? The church or Jesus, right? What does Israel mean in the Old Testament? Literally, it's a building, but Jesus says he's the new, I'm sorry. What is the temple in the Old Testament? It's a building. What does Jesus say the temple is? He says he's the temple. Priests are belong to this group of Aaron in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, all Christians are priests, okay? So these terms, circumcision is the mark of those in covenant in the Old Testament. Baptism is the mark of those in covenant in the New Testament. So these terms change meaning. Jesus brings, quote, new wine that doesn't fit into old wineskins. It fails to explain how Jew and Gentile are united as one man in Christ. Ephesians 2, 15. How many brides does Christ have? Just one, the church. He is not a polygamist. He just has one, the church, those that know Christ. It has a tendency to treat the Old Testament as outdated, works-based, or irrelevant. Sometimes you'll get that in their preaching. It will be as though the Old Testament was this thing that Israel had to do to be saved, but in the New Testament we're saved by grace. No, actually, you've always been saved by grace. And then it holds a very strange view of the end times, which includes two second comings of Christ, not just one, and a pre-tribulational rapture, okay? A pre-tribulational rapture. That's the dispensational position. By the way, I am not in any way, if you hold this position or you grew up holding this position, I am not trying to make fun of you in any way. I'm only doing this because I'm exhausted and I just found out I'd have to preach a few hours ago and I'm stressed out. I'm trying to get laughs to keep you entertained. I don't dislike you. Some of my heroes are dispensational, okay? So work with me. Work with me. I love you. I'm not mad at you. It doesn't mean if you... You can be a member of Parkway and hold this position, okay? You can't be on staff and hold this position. 
when Jeff and I first met with Wade and uh, Jerry, one of the things he said is that I will not hire someone who's dispensational. But you can be a member uh, of this church and hold this position. Okay, this is not this is not a major doc. This is not like the Trinity, where if you deny it, you're going to hell. This is a this is not that important. It's important. Everything in the Bible is important, but it's not that important as other things. Okay. Now let's talk about covenantalism. So, can somebody give me just a few facets of dispensationalism? Just a few. Even if you do one, that's good enough. Just yell it out. Yeah, there's a strong discontinuity or strong separation between the Old and New Testament. Good. What else? Do I? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nakedness. Uh, okay, yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, the idea of this rapture, right? Kind of the left behind, Tim LaHaye, uh, you know, kind of idea that, that your Christians are just going to be sucked out of here and everyone else is just going to realize how wrong they are and then Christ will come back a third time. And that kind of, The church has never held that, okay? That's a new view in, uh, in Christianity. What else? Separation of Israel and the church. You cannot apply passages originally to Israel to the church. They will say that you are twisting the Bible and you're making something metaphorical that's literal. And we'll say, but the New Testament authors do that, so it's got to be okay. What else? Anything else? Yeah, there's a focus on Israel. The church is just a, quote, parentheses in God's plan uh, of redemption. That's what, uh, that's what the original classical dispensationalists would say. Okay, that's good. I think you guys get that. Now, let's go to the other end of the spectrum. Let's go to covenantalism. I didn't write out the whole words. In fact, Carl wrote this. Can you tell? When I wrote it, it looked like something you would find scribbled inside a bathroom in an insane asylum. And so I had Carl come up here and write it, except for this word. He missed this one, so I had to put it. So you can tell the the creepy-looking letters are mine. The rest are Carl's. Uh, So here's the question I'm trying to answer in this chart. Ready? Here's a question. In whom are the promises made to Israel in the Old Testament fulfilled? In whom are the promises made in the Old Testament fulfilled? The dispensationalist says they're fulfilled in literal, national, physical Israel. If there's a promise of land, they have to have land. If there's a promise of this, they have to have this. You have to fulfill it in Israel. Covenantalists will say that the promises in the Old Testament are fulfilled in the church, who is the new Israel. You with me? That's really the biggest distinction. These are very complicated systems. It really boils down to this. Promises made to Israel, do they go to Israel or do they go to the church? That's really the big distinction. Now, you have something known as progressive dispensationalism. Let me just mention this really quickly. And this is kind of a halfway point between the two. A progressive dispensationalism, this is the kind of dispensationalism you primarily see today. This is how Dallas Seminary is today. This is how a lot of really good godly guys, guys like uh, Daryl Bach and Dan Wallace and other guys at other seminaries, Bruce Ware, Craig Blazing, these kind of guys, they are progressive dispensationalists. They will say some of the promises are fulfilled in the church and some are fulfilled in Israel. Okay, it's kind of a halfway point. They'll say land is still to Israel. That's the big one. That's the big, they're they're real big on land for Israel if you're dispensational. But they'll say some are fulfilled in the church and some are fulfilled in literal national Israel. But let's talk about, so we talked about dispensationalism. Now let's talk about covenantalism. This is the position that's been held by the majority of Protestants since the Reformation, okay? Uh, It has roots in guys like John Calvin, Heinrich Bullinger, and others. Uh, I put a few other names here you can look at if you want to. This is the view that's held if you grew up, for example, in a Presbyterian church, a Reformed church, if you grew up Lutheran, Methodist, Anglican, or Episcopalian, and many others, most of them will hold some sort of version of covenantalism. So this is the majority position. It's the position that's been held by Protestants uh, since the Reformation. You even have this idea in Roman Catholicism, where they very much see the church as the new Israel. Uh, And so, uh, so that's definitely the dominant position. Uh, it would be the position of Westminster Seminary, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary, and many others. The big difference is in covenantalism, the promises made to Israel are fulfilled, and they would say the new Israel, the church. When you reject Jesus and you reject the Messiah, you reject the God of Israel. 
you cease being Jewish. Paul says it's those who are of the faith of Abraham who belong to Israel. And so they will say that those promises are fulfilled in the church. Now, what covenantalists do is they will say this. They will say that there are these covenants that I just mentioned, right? I mentioned the one with Adam and Abraham and Moses and Noah and all of this. But they will say that there are three larger theological covenants that stand under or stand over all of those, okay? They'll say that there's a covenant of redemption, a covenant of works, and a covenant of grace. Let me say that again. A covenant of redemption. The Latin phrase there is a pactum salutis, uh, a pact of salvation. Pactum salutis, which is a covenant of redemption. A covenant of works and a covenant of grace. Here's what they mean by that. The covenant of redemption is something the Trinity enters into before creation, okay? Where the Father, the Son, and the Spirit basically say, we're going to save mankind. We're going to save mankind. Father, you're going to be the Father. And so you send the Son. Well, you're not going to be the Father. You've always been the Father. They don't agree to it. Anyway. Son, you're going to go redeem. We're going to send the Spirit. He's going to indwell. And the Trinity makes an agreement to save mankind. That's what's known as the Pactum Salutis or the Covenant of Redemption. Okay? Uh, when Jesus says things like, glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began and these kind of things, you see that there's these interrelationships going on within the members of the Trinity before creation. And one of the things Reformed guys will say is they will say, as the Trinity is planning, and by the way, they don't like deliberately plan. They've always eternally planned. They've always eternally known what they're going to do, uh, that uh, they decide to save mankind. Okay, this is this idea of this inter-Trinitarian covenant. They will say the covenant of works is what Adam had, and only Adam was a covenant of works. If I were to say to you, which of the Old Testament covenants are works-based, there's a tendency for people to say, well, the Mosaic law, the Mosaic covenant, because they were given all these rules. No. To reform guys, the only Old Testament covenant that was dependent upon your obedience and dependent upon you to make it happen, really, was the Adamic covenant, the one made with Adam. Adam was not born with original sin. Adam could have chosen the other tree. Adam literally, had he been obedient, would have purchased our salvation. Adam is kind of in like a trial period. He's kind of in a probationary period where God says, if you're faithful, everything will go well. If you're unfaithful, you will die and everything will go bad. And so it's this trial period, in a sense, for mankind. And so had Adam been faithful, that would have been the end of the story. It is, literally, he would have purchased salvation. Again, I said this for you last week. Salvation is free to you. It's not free, period. Somebody had to purchase it for you. Notice that Adam failed, and so you got his condemnation, so you have to have Christ, the God-man, purchase for you salvation so that you can be saved. It's free to you. It's not free in total. Somebody had to pay for it. But the covenant of works is just something that Adam did. And then all the other covenants fall under what's called a covenant of grace. They're all gracious. They all start with God's initiative. They all depend on God. Okay? They all depend on God. Some, you're commanded to do certain things, like the Mosaic Law. If you do this, things will go well. If you don't, you'll get kicked out of the land. Others, God just promises, hey, Abraham, I'm going to send uh, one of your descendants that's going to fix the world. The end, all right? That's kind of the end. That's, he just promises to make it happen, okay? But that's the idea in Reformed thinking. So in Reformed thinking, we mentioned these six covenants. The Pactum Salutis, the Trinity covenants together before creation to save mankind. Then there's a covenant of works, which only the category of Adam would be under that covenant of works. And then all the rest of the covenants fall under the covenant of grace, okay? Now, here's what covenantalism would hold. Here's what covenantalism would hold. Notice, by the way, that all those other covenants, which is Noah through the new covenant, are all based on grace. You see the continuity there. You see the continuity there. Stop thinking in your mind that Old Testament people were saved by doing and New Testament people were saved by believing. They're both saved by believing, okay? They're both saved by believing. So a few things that mark out covenantalism. There's a very strong continuity between the Old and New Testaments, okay? 
Covenantalism is marked by a conflation of Israel and the church. They very much go together. There's only one people of God. A spiritual typological way of interpreting the covenants. They're not just about Israel. They're about those who are spiritually Israel, those who are linked to Abraham. It's marked by a view known as, we'll, we'll get into this more when we get into end time stuff, so don't, you don't have to remember all this now. All millennialism along with postmillennialism, and it's marked by pedo-baptism, infant baptism. Why do most churches, other than Baptist churches or non-denominational churches or whatever, why do most churches baptize infants? Because there's such a strong continuity in their mind between the Old and the New Testament that in the same way that God's people in the Old Testament would circumcise their children... Believers in the New Testament should do a spiritual form of circumcision for their children, which is baptism. Okay? That's where you get the idea of pedo-baptism or infant baptism. Pideon is the Greek word for child. Uh, that's where you get the word pedo-baptism. Okay? Uh, problems with covenantalism. Here's a few places where it fails. It fails to account for the proper amount of disunity between the covenants. Okay? So whereas dispensationalism went too far in seeing a radical discontinuity, covenantalism kind of acts like there's the Old Testament and then the Old Testament part two. It kind of acts like there's not much new in the new covenant. The problem is when you look at the prophets and they talk about a new covenant, one of the big things that they say that will be new about the new covenant is that it won't be like Israel. It won't be a mixed body with believers and non-believers that all will know God, that it'll only be a body of believers. That's one of the things that makes the new covenant new, so they don't properly take that into account. They also don't realize there's not a perfect one-to-one correlation between Israel and the church. Again, their their error is too much continuity. Dispensationalism, too much discontinuity. Covenantalism, too much continuity. How do I remember those? Dispensationalism and discontinuity, sound similar? Continuity and covenantalism both start with C. That's how you remember it. One starts with D, one starts with C. That's from Jeff Ashley. That's helpful. It's a helpful way to remember it, okay? God's people in the New Testament consist only of the elect, see Jeremiah 31, and are not a mixed ethnic body as in the Old Testament. Let me say it this way. In the Old Testament, you circumcise everybody who's linked to Abraham, which is why you circumcise your, your kids. You're, you're linked to Abraham physically, so when you have kids, they're physically linked to Abraham, so you circumcise everybody linked to Abraham. In the New Testament, you baptize everybody linked to Abraham, but who's linked to Abraham in the New Testament? Those who have faith in Christ. Not the unbelieving non-Jewish children of people that have faith in Christ, but only those that have faith in Christ, okay? It doesn't properly understand the Abrahamic covenant, Okay? The Abrahamic covenant very much is something ethnic, and what it kind of does is it takes the Abrahamic covenant, removes its ethnic dimension, flattens it across all the other covenants, and makes it primary. And then lastly, it continues to see the moral law, the moral commands of the Old Testament as binding today. If you look in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is a standard document for Reformed Christians, it will say clearly that there are three divisions in the Old Testament law, civil, Moral and ceremonial. It will say we are not under civil. It will say we are not under ceremonial, but we are under moral. Okay? The problem is the New Testament sees the law as a whole. It doesn't divide it up into three parts. You're either completely under the law or you're completely not. Now, there's a view of of covenantalism that goes even further than that, further than the Westminster Confession of Faith called theonomy. And theonomy would say you're under both the moral and the civil elements of the law, but just not the ceremonial. Okay? Now, what is my view? Just by looking at this chart... Does one of these sections seem a little suspicious? Hmm, which one? Uh, I hold a view that it's, so it, it, it's becoming more popular in theological circles. It's called progressive covenantalism. They're not the first guys to do this. 
okay? It's a form of Baptist covenantalism. It's, it's a view that tries to say we're primarily covenantal. There's primarily continuity between the Old and New Testament, but there are some new things that our Presbyterian brothers and sisters have not taken into account. And so what progressive covenantalists will say is this. Are the promises made to Israel fulfilled in Israel? Dispensationalist says, yes, they're fulfilled in Israel. Covenantalists say, no, they're fulfilled in the church. Progressive covenantalists say they're fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the true Israelite. And by the way, he's ethnically Jewish, so you're able, in a sense, to take those passages literally, and you're able to figure out how they apply to the church because everybody linked to Christ is what the church is. That's what the church is. So what they will say is it's not that those promises are fulfilled in literal Israel, nor is it that those promises are just fulfilled one-to-one in the church with nothing new. The promises are fulfilled in Christ, who is the true Israelite, okay? Who is the true Israelite? I'll talk about more about that in just a second. So here's what progressive covenantalism is. It's basically covenantalism with these few exceptions. I've marked them down on your sheet. It better recognizes that there is more of a newness to the new covenant than covenantal guys. It only practices believer's baptism instead of infant baptism. It recognizes that church members should be believers, not a mixed body of believers and unbelievers like the Old Testament Israel. It realizes that the Old Testament is still Scripture, but that Christ has fulfilled all of the Mosaic law, including the moral commands, and we today are only under the law of Christ. And it realizes that the New Testament sees Jesus as the true Israel. Now, this is huge. We're going to have a whole lesson on this uh, eventually. How many tribes are there in the Old Testament? How many disciples does Jesus have? Is that accidental? He, he, he wanted 13, but another guy was like, no, man, I got a better offer. I'm going to the Mavericks or whatever, and he didn't join. Uh, what river does Israel go to into the promised land? What river does Jesus go through in his baptism? Jordan. Uh, how many years is Israel tested in the wilderness? And when they're tested in the wilderness, do they succeed or do they fail? They fail. How many days is Jesus tempted in the wilderness? And when he's tempted to do the same things they do, by the way, trust the manna, trust the, the stones turning to bread, or to worship the devil, commit idolatry, test God, these kind of things, does he succeed or does he fail? He succeeds. Uh, where did you go in the Old Testament to be the closest to God's presence? Though he's everywhere, where did you most feel blessed in the Old Testament? The temple. Uh, what does Jesus say that he is? The temple. If you want to pray towards God, you don't pray bowing facing Jerusalem anymore. You pray bowing facing Christ. Um, let's see. In the Old Testament, you have the law and the prophets on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who is Jesus hanging out with? Someone representing the law, someone representing the prophets. Jesus is Israel. He's Israel as a man. That's what his whole ministry is about. He's replaying the role of Israel, and he's succeeding where Israel has failed. And just in case you say, well, Zach, I I think you're just making up that typology. Let me give you some passages. Because we're asking this question again. These promises made to Old Old Testament Israel, are they fulfilled in Israel, the church, or Jesus? Look at what the text will say. 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God, meaning Old Testament promises too, find their yes in him. That is why it's through him we utter our amen to God for his glory. Luke 24.27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. After his resurrection, he's walking along the road, and he's like, hey, remember all that Old Testament stuff? It's all about me. I'm the greater Moses. I'm the greater Abraham. I'm the greater David. I'm the great. It's all about Christ. That's why we're called Christians and not good people-ians or whatever. It's all about Jesus. Galatians 3.16. Now look at this one. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not, does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Think about what the Bible just said. The Bible just said all the promises made to Israel weren't really made to Israel. All the promises made to Israel were actually made to one particular descendant of Abraham, the true Israelite, who is, drumroll, Jesus, right? Do you see? So now, the covenantal guys will say, yeah, but Zach, we mean that. We mean they're fulfilled in Jesus and those that are linked to the church. But the problem is they don't realize that covenants like circumcision are fulfilled in Christ. He was circumcised to fulfill all righteousness. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. He's perfect. What does he say to John the Baptist? Let's do this to fulfill all righteousness. I don't need to be baptized, but sinners do, and I'm identifying with sinners. So let's, let me be perfect on their behalf where they have been imperfect. That's what's going on. 